Hi folks, this is Daniela Camboni for ITM Trading and before we get to my segment today, I just want to take a second to recognize the fact that we cover a lot of in-depth material on this show and we get so many questions about folks that don't know how to navigate the current system, they don't know what to do with all this information. You know, when we hear about the rise of central bank digital currencies or the rise of BRICS nations, what is one to do? We get so many questions about what people can do. Not everyone knows whom they can trust. And I just wanted to share that one of the big reasons I joined ITM Trading was because of their level of research and how they help people plan strategically. So if any of you have questions, there's a link below where you can schedule a call with an expert analyst. All right, that said, let's get to it. Let's get to our show today. Hi, this is Daniela Camboni. Welcome back to the Daniela Camboni Show here on ITM Trading. Well, today we are catching up with Nomi Prince. She is the best-selling author of Permanent Distortion and Collusion, How Central Bankers Rigged the World. Perfect guest ahead of uh, the much-anticipated Federal Reserve uh, meeting today. Nomi, so good to be with you. Thank you so much, Daniela. What, what exciting times we have in the year that we have ahead. Well, yes, and I and I want to I want to get to uh, want to get to that point because um, I know that you have five important points to watch for 2024. You say that this is a different year, a, a peculiar year, and we're probably going to get to why you think that. But first, your thoughts on Jerome Powell and the Federal Reserve is QT over Nomi, and is it time to start the timer for quantitative easing? Um, yes. Now, here's the thing. We, I do not expect the Fed to, to cut rates um, at this first meeting out, out the gate. Um, I don't actually expect them to cut rates until the second half of the year, because though we've seen some abatement in inflation, um, I don't think that Jerome Powell wants to make a mistake. I think he wants to be extra cautious. But that brings us to QT and QE, because that's sort of the back doorway to ease monetary policy um, before a specific rate cut. And, and here's what I was looking at, Daniela. So yes. their book um, is at about $7.6, $7.7 trillion. Now that is right. down from the almost $9 trillion that it was at the height of COVID, where they basically more than doubled it from the $4.1 trillion it was the January before COVID, so during that time. It's not, done, it's not down a lot. But what's interesting is that um, what we've been seeing from these meetings, especially the one in December, is that the Fed governors and the other people on the FOMC committee are talking about QE. And there's two reasons for that. One is banks are still flailing. Um, we, we, we know that the regional banks are not healthy yet. They're still sitting on loss-making treasury bonds and they're still seeing deposits fly out the window. So what they're doing is they're borrowing from something the Fed set up last March when we had a banking crisis, um, which is a bank term funding facility and a program. They used to call things facilities. Now they're calling them programs. What The point being, it's, it's a pile of money that is on loan to these banks. And all of these loans are due March 11th. I don't think that's going to happen. I don't think they're going to close that funding March 11th, which means it's going to stay on their books. They cannot QT while they are kind of keeping open what is basically a QE or a money printing availability fund for banks. So what, 
I mean, it sounds like what is what what are they going to do then? So what I think they're going to do is I think they're going to extend that facility, first of all, that program, because it was supposed to be just for one year. The idea was that, you know, we had these three major bank fails last March. The Fed was going to open its books, which it did. It printed at the time up to three hundred billion dollars, even though it was technically in QT mode last March printed the money anyway, just didn't tell anybody. Um, I think there's a possibility they do some of that again. And rather than end the program, which they said they would do a year ago, this March 11th, I believe they're going to extend it. And we have just seen record outtakes from that program of $141 billion um, in the beginning of January. So it's not like banks are saying, hey, here's your money back. What they're saying is we still need this money. So I think that the program's going to be extended. That's a backdoor QE. I think it could be grown, also backdoor QE, and I think we're going to hear a lot of talk from this FOMC meeting about dialing back the roll-off QT, you know, these bonds that have been maturing, not being sold by the Fed as their method of QT. Yeah, yeah, and, and I mean, what, looking at the overall picture, right, I mean, I was talking to Lynette Zhang about this. I mean, there's such different narratives coming out of mainstream media. I mean, we have U.S. Com consumer confidence climbing to highest since end of 2021. I mean, the Fed's obviously looking at this, but on the flip side, we have all these layoffs. I mean, just now, UPS to cut 12,000 jobs. I mean, so so the question I think is: Is the econ economy robust and healthy or not? Yeah, and and that is that is an excellent question, and obviously it depends who you ask. So when we see that those consumer confidence numbers are up in general, um, and consumers are buying in general, they are doing so at record debt levels. And not only are these debt levels record, but the interest rate for the debt is also at record high. So what that means is as these layoffs, as these job cuts kind of filter into people and to their families, um, it's going to be harder and harder to come up with the excess money, the excess cash to pay off these credit bills. And what we've also seen is that a lot of um, the credit card debt is about basic needs. There's credit card debt that's risen for healthcare, credit yes. card debt for utilities, credit card debt for food. People never used to use their credit cards for food, Danielle, and now they're using them for food. So the, yes. the, this all comes across as looking very healthy, but it's, it's actually like, you know, a sort of veil of health covering this, this potential rock. And to that point, because I know you tweeted about it as well, um, it's, it's, it's directly from an article from the Wall Street Journal that says, from fuel and groceries to hotels and airline tickets, U.S. consumers are putting more purchases on credit cards and taking longer to pay them off. The four biggest U.S. banks reported higher credit card spending in 2023 compared uh, with, the, the previous, uh, with the previous year. Um, unpaid balances also surpassed 2019 levels for the first time, showing that consumers are putting more purchases on cards and taking longer to pay off their bills than they were before the pandemic. Right. Right. And, and again, and they're doing so at, at a greater cost. So, so they're pushing stuff into the future. They're making these purchases now. And that, that allows retailers as well. I mean, even if you take out food and utilities and, and the health and the basic needs that they're now paying for, people are paying for. Um, also, even, even items, you know, whether it's a, a TV or a sofa or whatever, there's, there's all these extra layaway programs um, because retailers want to move product. And, and, and in the big numbers, that comes across um, 
as sales because they are sales. But it's another method of people effectively tapping into, into future income, which they may not receive in order to pay higher price debt today. Um, and the country's doing the same thing. Um, so that's the other thing that the Fed looks at as well, just doesn't talk about. We've got 34 trillion in counting of debt. Um, we basically are paying over a half a trillion dollars in interest per year on our debt, and we have a $1.7 trillion deficit. So more than almost a third of the deficit um, is just our interest payments. And, and you can't grow the economy out of that, and, and that connects back to um, potential job losses or people doubling or tripling up on jobs. And everyone, I guess I'll just ask you to weigh in on this. Um, you know, everyone's kind of doing these surveys of who's likely, most likely to get fired in these situations. Is it the remote workers, middle managers? I mean, what, what's your gut feeling? Yeah, I mean, middle managers are, are definitely um, at risk here because the higher level managers are basically not going to fire themselves unless, or at least most of them, um, unless their company actually implodes. Um, the lower levels are being, are being stretched, although they are at risk. And the middle levels, um, unless they're able to either produce product or produce content or whatever it is you know their company does um, are the ones that that get squeezed in the middle i mean just like the middle class get gets squeezed um as well our economy is less stable it's the same thing for corporations let's get to uh what i started saying at the beginning your five flashpoints, what you call them that you're watching for 2024 um, and what you say could possibly make 2024 a it's a different year you said Right. Um, so we, we talked a little bit about banks and the Fed. So that's that's definitely one of those points. I don't think banks are out of the woods yet. I do think that whether it's commercial loans or consumer loans, we are going to see more problems with credit coming out of banks, um, possible more delinquencies and, and possible defaults. And this could filter in uh, to the corporate world as well, depending on which corporations are just embedded in this idea of extra debt to, to function. So all of that idea of banking debt consumers, that, that's definitely a flashpoint to watch. Um, the other thing is we are in an election year, right? So the second thing is we're looking at a, a very volatile geopolitical year. Of course, we've got the U.S. election. Um, we just had an election in Taiwan, which has created um, some more volatility with respect to China and Taiwan, and therefore China and the U.S. and the South China Sea, um, and more tensions over who gets what and who gets access uh, to those waterways there. Um, we obviously have connect, you know, rising tensions um, that are already high in the Middle East. Um, with what's happening uh, right now um, in Jordan, with what Biden wants to do, or what the administration mm -hmm. may want to do to, to act strong in the face of an election coming up. Um, so there's this all, all of this sort of movement coming on. The UK has elections. The, the you know, ECB is going to, your, your, Europe's going to have elections. So, so there's just a lot of change um, that's going on at the at sort of government levels around the world. And that means within their countries, with respect to their populations, and also with respect to each other. Um, and we saw a lot of this happen in 2016, a bit less in 2020, because um, there were less global elections. But now we have another mega election year that's going to create um, political volatility and, and citizen uh, volatility um, as well. And of course, with the ongoing um, war in Ukraine, um, I still think that we could see um, additional supply chain disruptions, particularly with regard to, to energy um, and a little bit more on food products that we saw at the beginning of that war uh, feeding into, into this year if we see more um, sort of transportation um, and, and production modes of getting resources from A to B uh, change in the wake of also those elections and what that means. So there, there's a lot of geopolitics um, here to put volatility into the overall markets, um, which leads me to uh, 
third of my points, which is that there are some materials that are in definite demand by all countries because of geopolitics, because of the, the striving for energy independence across the world, and because we're still in a big energy transition. Um, and that means battery metals um, remain um, in demand. We, we saw a lot of those prices go down last year, like for example with lithium, copper, um, but I think that's going to, to shift this year. Rare earths are, are a large focus of the United States uh, Defense Department, of the Pentagon, of the Navy, mm -hmm. in aerospace, um, and not just in the United States, throughout the world, and, and that pertains to all of the different rare earths. And there's a lot of finds that are going on around the world that are, uh, I think, going to see a lot of investment from countries and from investors. For example, there's large piles of rare earth minerals in Brazil, which are untapped, um, which basically, I think, can come to fruition now as the United States needs what they haven't had. Um, China um, is doubling down on what they do have. Um, and we're going to see a lot of flux from what's going on underneath the earth um, over the earth. Leads me to four. Um, which is uh, just the general emergence in AI. Um, now, one element that I focus on um, in AI right. is not just um, the technology of AI. To me, it's data in, data out. We could have the longer conversation on, 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 on that um, specifically, but, but where the, the industries um, that I think most connect into AI that relate to what we're just talking about um, is the energy industry and, of course, the tech energy that needs energy, the tech industry that needs energy. Um, because a lot of these materials are required for chips. They're required for um, efficient energy use, for efficient energy production. Um, and I think those are going to be areas where that, that divide between AI and energy is going to come closer and closer together um, and require resources and materials. Um, and so all of that, I think, is, is, is a big area to watch as well. Okay, so just to wrap, because you brought up a you know, very good point there on the Fed in election year, and I've asked other experts this, and yes, we're aware the Fed is an independent body, but are they going to feel the pressure, Nomi, that it's an election year? And no president's going to win an election uh, with, a, you know, not that it's a gloomy stock market by any means, um, but with a not robust stock market and if we're in a recession. That's exactly right. The Biden administration wants the Fed to ease policy. I mean, that, that, that would be if they were controlling the Fed, um, their, their preference. And, and also that, that really releases some of the constraint on, on, on debt uh, for the United States government as well as for, um, for citizens and makes everybody just, just feel better. That said, the Fed is independent and Powell has this ego. Um, I think that has been particularly acute through this entire monetary tightening period. He's really over tightened um, and he's done this to overfight inflation um, of which many of the components he cannot control. He cannot actually control rent or the housing market or fuel um, or food. He, he actually can. He can just sort of create more constraint in the credit that that uh, people basically pay for. Do you think he do you think he thought he would have had control over that? I think he did think that, ironically. I, I, I think, obviously, he was late to the party. Um, the Fed was late in terms of looking yeah. at, at, you know, supply-side inflation. Um, and I think he thinks that if he... I think he's taking a victory or lap on inflation, but the fact that he's also using words still um, that are cautionary um, about taking that victory lap, I think he's still in between the, did I really do this? Could I have really done this? Or this just happened? Because it's an economic cycle. We had tight supply 
prices got spiked after COVID and how much of that the Fed could control on the downside, um, we can't ever really untangle. So, so it's, it's his perception versus um, mm -hmm. just the data. And we also could have supply shocks in any of those areas um, for any reason, uh, geopolitics yep. or, or any kind of supply disruption um, in the future as well, which he can't control. So I think he just wants to back away from that, which is why I think he's not going to cut rates until before the election. We could see cuts from the summer through the election uh, much more likely than before that. And these sort of backdoor QEs um, happen before, you know, in, in this first half of the year. Let, let's see what they do, Nomi. Let the fireworks begin. Let's exactly. see. We're going to sit back, make a bag of popcorn. <laughs> exactly. And let's see what they do. But it sounds in the meantime that you have a puppy who desperately wants your attention, who reminds me of my, my toddlers. <laughs> so I will let you. I do this every time um, I talk about the economy. I, I, there's oh, they, there's more than one. <laughs> I, I'm guessing golden retrievers. Uh, a griffin and a, and a, and a minpin and a... Uh... Every time they hear economics, <laughs> and, uh, they think it's fun. I don't know. <laughs> they, they love hearing mommy speak. Well, I'll let you tend to them. They're more important. Thank you so much, Nomi. Always a pleasure. Thank you. And thank you for watching. We'll have more great content. So be sure to stay tuned to Daniela Camboni's show. We'll always have the best interviews for you. And you can be sure to not miss a beat by signing up at DanielaCamboni.com. That's it for me. Thanks for watching.